In the following podcast from Hope PR Ministry, we continue our discussion with Professor David Engelsmer on the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Having discussed the symbolism, mystery, and unifying nature of marriage last time, we turn our focus to the subject of divorce and remarriage today. We hope that you enjoyed this episode and that you learn more about what God teaches us in His Word. Welcome back to Hope PR Ministry. My name is Josh Harris, and I'm again sat with Jeff Carlsbeek and Professor David Engelsmer. We'll be carrying on our discussion today about the subject of marriage. Hi, Josh. Nice to be back again. For our listeners, we have an email, hope.rwc at gmail.com. And if you have any questions as we're going through it, you can email those questions and uh, we'll take a look at those and possibly have another podcast with all those questions later yep. on. Yeah, and, and not just questions as well. We're very open to having comments and negative or positive. I'm sure Professor would be uh, pretty happy to talk about whatever concerns and issues that people have with what has been said. So <clears throat> last time, last week, we just, we talked about the institution of marriage and that God is the one who instituted marriage. We also talked about the symbol of marriage in that uh, the husband and the wife reflect the marriage of Christ and his church. And today we want to talk about the subject of divorce and remarriage, a very important subject in the church world, one which the whole church world seems to have a great interest and uh, opinion on. Yeah, and if I could reiterate too, Josh, all believing children of God, no matter where their membership is, they have a vested interest in knowing what God has to say in his word about about these things. Yeah, absolutely. So that's uh, our assumption too. What uh, does he truly say about marriage? Yeah, so. exactly. This is, this is God's word, not our opinion, not our, our thoughts. This is God's word. And uh, we want to be faithful to his teaching in Scripture. Professor Engelsman, last time you gave us a definition of marriage derived from the Word of God. Could you give us that definition once again for us to get started? Yes, a biblically-based definition of marriage would be along these lines. Marriage is the divine ordinance for the human race. Notice I mentioned the human race and not only the church. Divine ordinance for the human race consisting of a uniquely intimate relationship between one man, a male, and one woman, a female. They become one flesh for the life of the two, which relationship God instituted as the outstanding symbol of the covenant union between Jesus Christ and his church. That definition takes its lead from the end of Genesis 2, God's institution of marriage and his creation of Adam and Eve as married virtually. From that ordinance, all of the instruction of the Bible in the Old Testament and in the New Testament derives. So um, essentially, we've discussed the beginning and the end of your definition, Professor Engelsma. Uh, the divine ordinance, and the symbol of Christ and his church. And now we're going to focus on the section where you say it's a lifelong relationship. In Genesis 2, why don't we read those two verses, 
Genesis 2, and that's uh, 23 and 24. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. It's particularly the part of verse 24 that speaks of the man cleaving unto his wife and going on to state that they shall be one flesh that describe what marriage is essentially. It's intimate union and such intimate union as that the two, the male and the female, become one flesh, one human nature. That's the most intimate fellowship. And for that reason, in light of what the Gospels especially go on to say about that intimate union of marriage, that we contend and proclaim and defend, as we're doing on this podcast, that marriage is for life. It's for the life of the two original mates. And in keeping with that, divorce is forbidden, The New Testament makes one exception to that prohibition of divorce, and that is that one or the other of the married couple is guilty of fornication or adultery, a sexual relationship or activity with another than her husband or his wife. And that also includes this intimacy of the original marriage that there may be no remarriage while the original two persons are still living. That's controversial, especially with regard to the remarriage or the possible remarriage of somebody who has been sinned against by a mate on the biblical, and that there's a divorce on the biblical ground for divorce, namely fornication. But I want to show on this broadcast that even when there is a legitimate divorce on the ground of the adultery of one or the other, remarriage is forbidden. That's clearly taught, especially by the New Testament reflections on marriage, but the impossibility and impermissibility of remarriage, even in the case of fornication, harks back to what was just read out of Genesis chapter 2. When the two married, God made them one flesh. And that one flesh is indissoluble and unbreakable, even in the case of the adultery of one or the other of the persons. Only God can and only God does dissolve a marriage, and that he does by the death of one or the other of the married persons. So you had mentioned that um, (laughs) only death can break this and and you had also mentioned that uh, marriage is a bond uh, last time rather than a contract let's say Um, are there other passages in scripture that explain Genesis 2 as you are uh, bringing out here the truth of Genesis 2 is it explained more in other passages of scripture there are other passages of scripture in fact many of them in the gospels and in the epistles, 
that bring out what is implied in the Genesis 2 account of the institution of marriage and make plain beyond the shadow of a doubt that remarriage, even after the divorce on the ground of fornication, is impermissible and forbidden by the word of God. But that all is due to the fact that such is the nature of marriage according to God's institution of it, that God makes the two one flesh, and one flesh is indissoluble except by the strong action of God in the death of one or the other of the married persons. Now, I'd like to demonstrate what I have said about the prominence of reflections on marriage and its lifelong being a bond from the Gospels in the New Testament. I refer, first of all, to Mark chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Let me add, before we read these passages, that there are many passages making this very point that there may be no remarriage while the original couple is living. This matter of divorce and remarriage is not a obscure aspect of the Bible, but it's emphasized, and it's emphasized plainly so that there ought not to be any dispute as to what the Bible teaches. And therefore, there is no excuse for Christians to ignore this aspect of the truth of marriage and for churches to permit people of their membership to remarry after divorce, even on the legitimate ground of divorce. I refer now to the words of Christ himself in Matthew 10, verses 11 and 12. And he saith unto them, his disciples, and in those disciples he says to the disciples of himself down through the ages, that is the church, to the church today also, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Now, the clarity of this passage is such that it's inconceivable that anyone would have any question or doubt or be able to challenge what the Lord teaches here. He forbids remarriage after divorce absolutely. Putting away, of course, refers to divorce. And he adds marry another and condemns that as adultery. And then in case anybody should limit what he says to just one of the married persons, he says the same thing about a woman putting away her husband and marrying another. And already this passage makes plain that what we're talking about is not merely some matter of disagreement among different churches, an academic matter. It's a matter of salvation. To commit adultery and go on committing adultery after remarriage is to consign oneself to damnation. Impenitent adulterers are lost. So this is an urgent matter for the church today, and that's our attitude in presenting this discussion 
concerning the truth of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We take the words of Christ in dead seriousness. In Luke chapter 16, verse 18, you have the same blunt, clear prohibition of divorce and remarriage by our Lord. Luke 16, verse 18, Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. Now this word of Christ adds something. In the first part of the text you have a man divorcing his wife and marrieth another, and he's living in adultery. The question arises, what about the woman who has been unjustly divorced by her husband? She has not been guilty of adultery. She has not given him any ground for divorcing her. And re reconciliation with him is impossible because he's married to another. And probably our sentiment would be that poor woman should be permitted to remarry. She has no guilt in the matter and the marital state is shut up to her. But in the second part of Luke 16, verse 18, with regard to that innocent woman who has been mistreated by her husband, who has since remarried, Jesus says, Whoso marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. And because obviously you can't commit adultery by yourself, that same judgment falls upon her should she remarry. Even if the innocent party so-called remarries after divorce, adultery is the condition of both of them. So I, that, that does seem pretty clear. Um, how, how is that text explained then by those who uh, hold to the innocent party being able to remarry? Those who permit remarriage on other grounds than the adultery of one's mate simply have their mouth shut by your question. They're not paying any attention to what the Bible teaches about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. There isn't any conceivable ground for remarriage on the part of those whose divorce was on some other ground than adultery. They simply disregard what Christ and the Bible teaches. They fly in the face of the solemn warning that remarriage after their divorce is adultery, and they go on without any submission to the Word of God in the Bible. That's what's happening in the vast majority of so-called Christian churches today. They're allowing divorce and then a following remarriage for all kinds of reasons other than divorce, uh, fornication. Simply, if the man gets sick of his wife or the woman finds a nicer husband, they allow the two to divorce and remarry as if there are no consequences and no judgment of God. But there are still some churches, very few, who permit the remarriage of the divorced person whose mate has been guilty of adultery. And they have one biblical passage in support of their teaching. Now that contradicts what we just read in Mark 10 and Luke yeah. 16. But I want to come to that one passage that they hang their hat on, so to speak, to allow the remarriage of the innocent party in a divorce in a moment. 
That's Matthew 19. We'll look at that in just a moment. Now I want to turn to one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Again, to show that the Bible clearly forbids remarriage after divorce absolutely, unconditionally, and for any reason whatsoever. And that chapter is 1 Corinthians 7. I think in the previous podcast, I went through that chapter section by section and explained the various sections in this all-important chapter on divorce and remarriage and on marriage itself. But now I want to look just at verse 39, the last verse of the chapter. And the question before us is this, does the Bible clearly forbid divorce and forbid remarriage after divorce while an original mate is still living? Verse 39, it is as though the apostle wraps up everything he's been teaching about the permanency of marriage in this whole chapter. This is what he says, the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. As is the case with every passage in the New Testament that you can locate, this too goes back to Genesis 2. What the Apostle says here is grounded in the fact that a man and a woman leave their father and mother and cleave to their mate, cleave, strong, intimate connection, the two of them are made one flesh by God. Because of that, because of how God instituted marriage and because of the unique intimacy of marriage, the two are not two anymore. They are one flesh. The apostle says what he says in the first part of verse 39 of 1 Corinthians 7. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. Notice another thing about this terminology. Marriage is not a contract. It isn't a contract into, into which the two of them go, which they make and which they can break. But a husband and wife are bound. It's a bond. And it's a binding by God. As long as her husband liveth. Now who can't understand this? I dare say that five-year-old... Sunday school students in any church could understand the first part of verse 39 in 1 Corinthians 7. As long as her husband liveth, but if her husband be dead, now we come to the ground of, re of remarriage, death, but if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. Some people might well be listening to this now, and they are listening to the verse which you just read from 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, um, regarding the death of the husband. So the wife is bound by the law um, as long as her husband liveth, but if her husband be dead. And some people might be saying, the death is not literal. When, when one is divorced, it is as if that husband is dead. How do we respond to that? Well, how do you respond to that, Prof? And then there's another uh, verse in Romans 7. It says, Romans 7, verse 2, For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he liveth. 
But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So there's a couple passages there that speak of um, being bound by the law to the husband. That Romans passage is a passage that I did not quote, and it's applicable. And the reference to that Romans 7 passage brings out how often and how clearly the Bible speaks to the issue of the lifelong nature of marriage and the impermissibility of remarriage while an original mate lives. This is a subject that is dear to the heart of the Holy Spirit because of its importance in the church. This is stated and commanded again and again and again. But I want to take up now that pathetic explanation of death in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, that tries to make of that death a fictitional death or a symbolical death in order to permit remarriage after divorce after all. And shocking though it is, and painful as it is to a Reformed man who feels brotherhood with Presbyterians, our Presbyterian relatives at the Westminster Confession, at the Westminster Assembly, tried to give that explanation to death in chapter 24, section 4 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. I'll read that. Is it 4 or section 5? Yes, I was mistaken. It's section 5. Westminster Confession of Faith 24.5 Adultery or fornication committed after a contract. And there already you see the Presbyterians going off the track. Marriage is not a contract. If it were a contract, we could break it for more or less solemn reasons. But in Genesis 2, the two shall be one flesh. It's a bond, not a contract. And a contract is something entered into by the two persons themselves. We make a contract with each other. Marriage is not instituted by our action of a contract, but by God's action of binding the two. But that, by the way, marriage, adultery, or fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage giveth just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. And here comes the important part, the part that we're interested in. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. Now, there's any number of criticisms of that second part of the Westminster Confession of Faith 5, 24, 5. And the first is the recognition by the divines at the Westminster Assembly that the Bible forbids remarriage except in the case of death. They had to recognize that. They couldn't ignore that. They had to do something with that. And what they did was to make the death that Christ and the apostles are speaking about a fictitional death. 
But in Romans 7 and 1 Corinthians 7, the apostle is not talking about a make-believe death. He's referring to an actual physical death that puts the husband or the wife in the ground so that he's not married to the wife or to the husband any longer. But what stands out to me is that even though they were of a mind to allow remarriage after divorce for the innocent party, they had to take note of the Bible's teaching that only death allows for a second marriage. Yeah. And then they worked with that to make it a fictional death. And that was inexcusable on their part. I can understand that. All human sensibility would say about the innocent party, he or she ought to be able to remarry. But the Word of God does not permit that, and we're bound not by our sensibilities, but by the Word of God. Death in 1 Corinthians 7 and in Romans 7 is literal, physical, actual death. And that's the way every reader of the Bible would understand that also. So you would say it doesn't even need to be proved. It's uh, it's that's the way that you read it. It's the normal reading of Scripture. I would say I would put it yes. I would put it this way: First Corinthians seven verse thirty nine commands us to take the death referred to there as literal physical death, and in light of Genesis two in particular, the bond. The one flesh is dissolved by death. It isn't dissolved by anything else, but it is dissolved by death. So death in 1 Corinthians 7.39 simply commands to be interpreted and understood as physical death. And the importance for me of the Westminster Confession of Faith 24.5 is its indication that the Westminster divines recognized that. And it's shameful. They were honorable men, but it was shameful how they got rid of the teaching of 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, about death and death alone allowing for remarriage. That was inexcusable on their part. It's interesting that uh, the three forms of unity in the Reformed churches don't speak of marriage and uh, divorce at all. Is that correct? It's only in the Westminster? I believe that that's right. The Reformed creeds that bind us do not go into the matter of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, so we're not bound by such an article as is found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. In fact, it may be a weakness of our creeds that they don't say anything at all about the nature of marriage and the permanency of marriage. And I have entertained the possibility to present a well-thought-out overture to our synod to add an article to one of the creeds about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We may do that. The church may do that. And I think it would be well worthwhile. It may even be urgent in our day of the laxity of many with regard to marriage to include that in our creed. 
It would fit in the Belgic Confession somewhere. Now the question was raised by one of you a little while ago. What do churches say in response to the gospel's testimony that marriage is for life, there's divorce permitted on one ground, adultery, but no remarriage even in the case of adultery in a marriage. And I responded that many churches with their disregard for the authority of the Bible simply pay no attention at all to what the Bible teaches about divorce and remarriage. That's a mark that a church is becoming a false church if they pay no attention to the authority of Scripture with regard to such an important matter as divorce and remarriage, they show that they are losing the mark of the true church that consists of faithfulness to the Word of God. But there are some nominally conservative Presbyterian and Reformed churches that do have a passage of Scripture that they appeal to in support of their teaching that the innocent party may remarry. There's one such passage in the Bible, and that's in Matthew 19, and I'd like to turn to that now. What are those verses? uh, Matthew 19, really verses 1 through 9. Maybe a little bit too long to read the whole thing. Yes, the important... passage in the section Matthew 19 verses 1 through 9 is verses 8 and 9. I can read those. The disciples of Jesus ask him about something that took place in the Old Testament. Moses commanded to give a writing of divorcement and to put away the wife of Israelite men. Verse 7. Then Jesus responded, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, suffered them to do that, tolerated it, permitted it, because they were hard-hearted. I've had couples already in my pastoral ministry raise that matter. They wanted to divorce and get another mate, and when I showed them the passages we've just already read, They were familiar enough with the Bible to say Moses allowed divorce and remarriage in the Old Testament. Jesus noted that in Matthew 19, and my response was, Moses permitted that to hard-hearted people. Is that the kind of person you are? Do you expect to go to heaven as a hard-hearted person? And that quieted them. But now I continue Verse 9 of Matthew 19, And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. The argument is that the exception clause in verse 9 applies to divorce and the remarriage that inevitably follows. So that The teaching of Matthew 19, verse 9 is that a man may not divorce his wife or remarry except it be for fornication. But if he does remarry after fornication, he's not committing adultery. That's the argument. Now the question is, to what does the exception clause in Matthew 19 apply? 
does it apply to both the divorce and the remarriage, or does it apply only to the divorce? In Matthew 19, verse 9, itself makes plain that Jesus is giving an exception only to his prohibition of putting away or divorce, and not to the remarriage that inevitably follows. The exception clause in the text itself follows the prohibition of divorce. Jesus is saying, I prohibit divorce except for fornication. Then he adds the matter of remarriage because when people divorce, inevitably they also remarry. And he's noting that, but he's not giving an exception to the prohibition of remarriage. He's only giving an exception to the prohibition of divorce. And what makes that even clearer and more authoritative is that all the other texts in the Bible, many of which we've read, absolutely forbid remarriage. There is no exception clause in any of those passages. But even more striking is the, the last part of Matthew 19, verse 9. And whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. Now the first part of Matthew 19, verse 9, proposes the case of a man who has divorced his wife, not on the ground of fornication, and married another. That's his, that's his state. He has illegitimately divorced and remarried. The woman, therefore, is the innocent party. And if the explanation of Matthew 19, verse 9 is correct, that there's an exception in the case of fornication, that exception applies to her. Her husband has divorced her and remarried, not on the ground of her adultery. He's the guilty party. She's the innocent party. Now, if adultery is a ground for remarriage, Jesus should say, and therefore the woman who has been divorced may marry, or something like that. But instead he says, even the one who has been put away, the innocent party, may not remarry, and if she does, she commits adultery. Well, Matthew 19, verse 9 itself makes plain that the exception applies only to divorce. It gives the one ground for divorce and denies the right of remarriage. Prof, you, you talk about here a guilty party and an innocent party. Is there such thing as an innocent, innocent party? An innocent party would be a, mar a man or a woman who virtually was sinless in the marriage and never mistreated his wife or she mistreated her husband, so that from that point of view, there is no innocent party. But the language of the Bible concerning the innocent party is the one who has not been guilty of fornication or adultery. That, that is the case. There are men who commit adultery, whereas their wife has been faithful to him, or the other way around. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about the innocent party. But your observation is correct. Even though a man may not have committed adultery against his wife, he may have treated her so abusively that he is not an innocent party when she divorces him. He bears a lot of the blame.
so much for the one passage of scripture that is appealed to as giving the right of remarriage in the case of divorce. But what has to be brought to the attention of the church world today is that if there is a ground for remarriage after divorce, it's strictly limited to the case of adultery. If the Bible does give a ground for remarriage, there is one ground, the sexual unfaithfulness of one's mate. I've shown from Matthew 19, verse 9, that in fact the Bible doesn't give a ground for that, even in the case of the so-called innocent party. But if it did, Matthew 19, verse 9 would limit the remarriage to the case of a woman or a man whose mate has been guilty of adultery. It doesn't allow for a divorce on any, uh, remarriage on any other ground. There's one other passage of Scripture that I want to look at to show that the Bible itself forbids the so-called innocent party to remarry. That's back in 1 Corinthians 7, and now verses 10 and 11. I'm convinced that in the whole discussion of the matter of the legitimacy of remarriage in the case of an adulterer in the marriage, this passage has been largely overlooked. And so I'm happy to have the opportunity to call attention to what 1 Corinthians 7 verses 10 and 11 have to say on that issue of the remarriage of the so-called innocent party. That's 10 and 11. You want me to read that? 10 and 11. Would you read it? And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. Notice carefully verse 10 introduces this section as the teaching not of the apostle, he means not first of all, I'm not bringing this in for the first time, but the teaching of the Lord. So he's going to teach something that the Lord Jesus Christ expressly taught in his ministry. Where did he teach it? Mark 10, Luke 16, verse 18, and Matthew 19. Jesus taught, let not the wife depart from her husband. Paul didn't come up with that. Jesus taught that. We've already showed that from the Gospels. And then the Lord also taught, but and if she depart, so there is a permissible departure. The rule is no departure from your husband. That is no divorce. If we could stop there just for a minute, um, that there is something about... Um, departure meaning divorce rather than uh, an abusive husband driving a woman away. But we're going to get to that later at another time, but just right now. Departure here is divorce. Yeah. That's the language of the New Testament with regard to divorce. Whatever f- legal form that takes, who's ever involved, the prohibition of Paul following the Lord is The wife may not divorce her husband. And then he immediately adds, if she does, which implies 
there is a lawful ground in the church of Christ for a woman to divorce her husband. And that's something that also was taught by the Lord. This is not an invention of the apostle. He's dealing with what the Lord Jesus taught during his ministry. And in the light of Matthew 19, Luke 16, and Mark 10, we know what that ground is. Her husband has been a fornicator or an adulterer. And then she may depart. The beginning of verse 11, let's establish that, permits a Christian woman to depart from her husband, to divorce her husband. Well, that one ground for departure or divorce is adultery. Now, the question is, specifically with regard to the controversial passage, Matthew 19, verse 9, may she remarry. She legitimately departs. She legitimately divorces on the ground of her husband's adultery. And the apostle expressly states she has two options when she departs from her husband. Let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. One alternative is not remarry, is it? She has to remain unmarried. Paul said so. And that sheds light back on the passage we were just talking about, Matthew 19, verse 9, where the question is, does that passage give a ground for divorce and remarriage, or does it give a ground only for divorce and not for remarriage? And Paul makes plain that Matthew 19, verse 9, is only giving an exception to the prohibition of divorce. Because Paul says about the teaching of the Lord in Matthew 19, verse 9, that the woman has to remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. I regard 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11 as an extraordinarily important passage with regard to the general matter of divorce and remarriage and specifically with regard to the issue, does adultery permit remarriage as well as divorce or only divorce? And that's this passage, I think, has been overlooked largely, even by us. It ought to become more prominent than it is. It's an important part of the Apostles' teaching in 1 Corinthians 7. It sheds light on Matthew 19, verse 9, and it addresses the great issue of divorce and remarriage. So God alone joined two together. Only God then can break. That's uh, been established by Scripture. And sins and... uh, even divorce, they can strain a marriage, right? But right. Uh, but they can't break that bond. That's, uh, that seems to be a very significant truth that nothing can break that bond except for God himself. And that reflects back on Genesis 2, verse 24. A man yeah. cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. That's what one flesh means. Positively, that one flesh is extraordinarily lovely and pleasant and delightful for the Christian man and his wife. There's nothing like that, not even the bond between a man and his father and mother. Beautiful thing, 
we, we mustn't resent that uh, they too become one flesh. When things are as they ought to be in a Christian marriage, the man and the woman would say, we've never thought about dissolving this bond. It's the main earthly relationship that there can possibly be. But everything the New Testament says negatively against divorce and remarriage goes back to Genesis 2. They're one flesh. They may try to dissolve it, and they can't. So if they cannot dissolve it, or they may not try to dissolve it, divorce itself, obviously our view of divorce is, it's negative, it's the negative, marriage is the positive, divorce is the negative. May we say that divorce is a sin, that we separate the husband and the wife, and they do not live together, they do not dwell together, as is commanded when they are married? It definitely is sinful. The question is, who's responsible for that division? And I suppose implied in the question is the matter of abuse, which is on the foreground. If a man abuses his wife, and by that I mean serious mistreatment, threatening her health and welfare and even her life, even then she isn't leaving him when they live separately, but he's driving her away. The sin, the fault, is all with him. He is doing his best to destroy that intimate bond that exists between him and his wife. So, taking your question head-on with its implications, if a woman is living outside the house where, his, where her brute, abusive husband is living, always with the knowledge and advice of the consistory, it's not something she does on her own, and the, the cause is abuse on his part. She hasn't left him, to use the biblical language, but he has driven her out. And the sin is his. Yeah, that would be a, a subject that we should get back to uh, in a, at another episode, too, because that's an important topic that we should yeah. talk about, too. Yeah. If oh. I may, I'd like to appeal to a peculiar source for a Reformed man on this subject of divorce and remarriage. And that source is a book by G.K. Chesterton, a thinker and a writer probably best known for his Father Brown fictional writings. But in his defense of orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton addressed the longing of some men to have more than one wife, whether at the same time or serially, and he addresses that temptation. A quote, just a brief passage from Orthodoxy, which brings out that the main concern that a believing husband or wife ought to have is not the desire for another woman or for another man because that would be more attractive and pleasurable, but he ought to live in the consciousness that it's a wonder that he has one wife at all or a husband and take pleasure in what God gives him. I quote, 
Chesterton, I never mix in the common murmur of that rising generation against monogamy because no restriction on sex seems so odd <laughs> and unexpected as sex itself. Then he keeps on. Keeping to one woman is a small price for so much as seeing one woman. To complain that I could only be married once was like complaining that I had only been born once. It was incommensurate with the terrible excitement of which one was talking. It showed not an exaggerated sensibility to sex, but a curious insensibility to it. A man is a fool who complains that he cannot enter Eden by five different gates at once. I think that's an acute, everyday, but biblically based observation about our being satisfied, if I may use that term, with our wife or with our husband. Yeah. It's amazing that we have one. Uh, why were men in the Old Testament allowed to have many wives? There was polygamy. And polygamy because the truth of marriage developed. In the Old Testament, the truth of marriage was not so clearly taught and so clearly bound upon the lives of the men of the, especially the men of the Old Testament, as is the case today. It's along the lines, the explanation is along the lines of what Jesus said to the Pharisees when they pointed out that Moses suffered men of Israel to divorce their wife and have another one. For the hardness of your hearts, he did that. The New Testament sheds more light on the institution of marriage and makes plain clearly that a man may only have one wife. But I do point out in addition to the truth of the development of marriage in the doctrine and life of the church that what was permitted in the Old Testament was polygamy, having more than one wife, as David did, the man after God's own heart. Two things about that. First of all, it caused no end of trouble in the life of the man who had more than one wife. David had all kinds of troubles in his marriages. His children were jealous of each other and killed each other. And David himself suffered that the effects of that jealousy when he had to flee for his life from his son Absalom. They were all vying for the crown. That first of all. Even though God tolerated polygamy in the Old Testament, he chastised even a David for departing from the truth of marriage. And that's something else Christ said to the Pharisees when they appealed to Moses' toleration of remarriage and toleration of more than one wife. From the beginning, it was not so. We have to go back to the beginning. God didn't make half a dozen Eves for Adam. But one Eve for one Adam, that was the institution, and that's what governs, should have governed even the behavior of the men of the Old Testament, and certainly does govern our lives today. So that's one thing about polygamy. And another thing is this. There's a difference between polygamy, having more than one wife, which was tolerated, and taking another man's wife for yourself. That God did not tolerate, even in the Old Testament. When David went to bed with Bathsheba, another man's, another man's wife, 
God came down on his beloved David like a ton of bricks. What a, what a chastisement for David's adultery. That was not permitted. Polygamy was because of the relative darkness of Old Testament history, but not adultery. Yeah, that's an interesting point. That yeah. God differentiated even there. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, it was it was a little darker for them with regards to the polygamy. And for us in the New Testament, living in the New Testament, it is clearer for us as Christ has come and the fullness of the uh, the doctrine of marriage is manifest to us that it is Christ and his church. He never puts us away um, and he upholds marriage. There's no sin on his part that we can divorce him and, and there's there's faithful. plenty of yeah. he's faithful yeah yeah I'm quick to forgive there's more light on other matters too but more light on the matter of marriage in the New Testament than there was in the Old Testament so you can the, recognize that development of the truth in life of the people of God so then uh, the argument that God could be tolerating divorce and remarriage in the New Testament like he tolerated polygamy in the Old Testament? That argument does not hold. It's one thing for two reasons. First of all, the light now is clear. We must walk in the light, and that light is expressed forcefully and plainly by Jesus and by his apostles. No divorce except for fornication and no remarriage in any case. That is very significant, too, that the, you pointed out that the Lord himself taught us, his church, on this. He had opportunity to, to speak to this when he lived on the earth, and he did. And what you just mentioned about Christ and the church applies, too. It's clearly manifested today that our earthly marriages in the church are a living symbol and testimony about the union of Christ and the church. And when you corrupt that, that earthly picture, that all reflects on the reality of Christ and the church. If we can have two wives, or if we may divorce our wife and marry another, especially the latter, that would carry with it the implication Christ may divorce us and marry another. At least that would be the witness we're giving. We give a witness by our behavior in marriage. If I would divorce my wife and marry another, that would be a witness to the ungodly, not only that we don't revere marriage any more than they do, but that the reality can be like that too. Christ could divorce his church and marry another. So the argument doesn't hold at all that because polygamy was tolerated or divorce and remarriage was tolerated in the Old Testament, that can also be the case today. How about from another point of view, uh, Professor, from the point of view of there are many things in the life of God's children on this earth and many sins and there are seemingly not eternal consequences for those sins. And we all make mistakes, but God is merciful. 
does this aspect of his revelation have to be obeyed in in such a strict way or isn't god merciful and allow his people to uh if they make a mistake in marriage to find another spouse that is how the argument goes nowadays my response to that is first of all when a man divorces his wife and remarries he's living in the state of adultery that was the language of the gospel passages that we read earlier. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. The present tense of the verb is used. Goes on living in adultery. Now, how can you have fellowship with God and entertain the hope of heaven if you go on deliberately and impenitently committing adultery? It's one thing that we sin every day and ask forgiveness every day, and don't make up our mind we're going to continue living in that sin, that's one thing. It's another thing to make a decision and then to carry it out that you go on breaking the seventh commandment impenitently. And the second response is, in the nature of the case, marriage is of greater importance than many of the matters concerning which we sin daily. Marriage is the living symbol of Christ and the church. Marriage is vital to the welfare of the church. Marriage is basic to the family, and the Christian church consists of families. So when a man goes on committing adultery in a remarriage, he's got his hand raised against the very church of Jesus Christ. And that takes form often, in the case of remarriage, in the ruin of the children. This is urgent. Yeah, that's a good distinction. And you mentioned the covenant as well, Prof, when you were speaking then. Is there is there anything that we can appeal to within the covenant itself with regards to um, to your counseling of couples in that those situations, the covenant children that they have, and as believers, believing parents, they also are within the covenant and they reflect in the marriage of Christ and their church. They should be unconditionally loving their spouse and I think generally in response to what I catch in your question the counseling we give and the preaching we do on marriage in the church ought to pattern itself after the relationship of Christ in the church that's Ephesians chapter 5 another grand passage on marriage in the New Testament our marriages must be patterned after the relationship of Christ and the church. As Christ loved the church, so am I to love my wife. As the church submits to Christ, my wife is supposed to submit to me. And you use the word unconditional. And that does apply to our marriages. We find out soon enough that our mate is imperfect. And then we think unsatisfactory to us. But our commitment to each other in marriage is unconditional, not based upon what a fine man the husband is or what a fine woman the wife is. We've sworn an oath, and that's unconditional. The only possibility of the divorcing of the two is fornication, as we've seen, and the marriage lasts a lifetime. So just as Christ lives unconditionally with us, we're to live unconditionally with our mate. And an absence of that unconditional love then will inevitably put that 
that marriage on on the path to divorce, would you say? Yes, and that comes back to marriage being a contract or a bond. If marriage is a contract, it's conditional. When two human beings make a con contract, they promise to do something if the other one will fulfill his obligation. And if he doesn't, the contract is broken. Westminster went off the rails when it talked about marriage as a contract. It's an unconditional bond. It is interesting how the Lord leads us back to the that truth of unconditional love. We, we confess that as Reformed believers that God has loved us unconditionally, and then God, in, in our lifetime, he brings that to the forefront of our minds, too, that we, we must love unconditionally. The same that we confess of God, that, that we are to do the same. That's yeah. how we are to love one another and, and our spouses. Yeah, and we're, we're admonished to do so, to live in love and peace. And that can only be done with Christ at the center of that relationship. That's another necessary point. The power of all this in doing what marriage requires of us or what God requires of us in marriage is astounding grace. Otherwise, everybody's marriage would fly apart. I had uh, one other question, too, about uh, putting asunder um, from 1 Corinthians six sixteen. Um, isn't God saying that adultery, quote-unquote, puts asunder when one becomes one body with a harlot. A man can't be one body with a harlot and with his wife, can he? The key word in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16 is body. You will notice it's not the word flesh. The mere sexual act with a whore is serious enough. A man becomes one body with her but he doesn't become one flesh with her, so there's no marriage. He's one flesh only with his wife. There I, there I see the verbal inspiration of the Bible. I delight in that text and that word. If Paul had been careless, he could have said, since sex with somebody resembles marriage, a man becomes one flesh with a whore. And that would have raised all kinds of problems one flesh with a whore and at the same time with your wife? Does the mere sexual act constitute marriage? Of course it doesn't. But it is it is becoming one body, not one flesh. Well, we should probably uh, wrap up. There's I, I still have some questions about this topic, uh, Josh. So we'll, we'll have to decide whether we want to continue in this Yeah. or uh, wait for some questions to come through. Um, for our listeners, again, uh, they can contact us by email, right? Hope. Yep, hoperwc at gmail.com. Okay, and maybe some of the, them questions will come up as well. Well, thanks again, Prof, for uh, taking the time to sit down with us and uh, talk about divorce and remarriage. It's a very important subject, and uh, I hope that we've we've helped others understand this, and I feel personally I've, I've learned... A good amount as well. I'm sure, Jeff, you you would agree. Um, yes, very much. Yep. Yeah. So, I commend you for your work on behalf of the spread of the truth with regard to marriage in particular. 
we'll pick this up again next time and uh, we look forward to to talking again thank you for listening to this episode next time in the third episode of this four-part series we'll continue our discussion on divorce and remarriage we've included links in our episode bio to where you may purchase books which are pertinent to this short podcast series we would highly recommend them to you thank you for listening in we hope to see you next time